Meh, I cry a lot, so. Oh, no, Molly. Oh, I'm just a crier. Don't worry about it. Okay, so as long as we're on the subject of being, like, a little bit of a, a crier, I wouldn't say that I necessarily am, like, a crier, but <laughs> a list of the things I've cried at are, like, obnoxiously sa- saccharine internet posts, mm. um, posts about sad puppies or cats, a particularly beautiful sunset has made me cry before. (laughs) I love that. Hey, everybody, and welcome to No Railings, a podcast where we talk about movies and how they're bad at public and environmental health and safety and stuff. (laughs) Absolutely. Today we are talking about... (laughs) (laughs) That was smooth. I love it. We're keeping it. We're keeping it. We're absolutely keeping it. Don't don't look back. (laughs) No regrets. Um, No regrets. Today we're talking about Zombieland. Uh, the 2009 movie starring Jesse Eisenberg, uh, Woody Harrelson, Emma Stone, and another one I do not remember the name of. What is her name? Uh, child. Yep. Child Companion. It's someone. It's someone. She's like a person now. Child Companion. <laughs> do you want to do the uh, the plot breakdown? So, Zombieland is a zombie movie that I appreciate because it calls itself a zombie movie instead of being like, oh, these walking dead, these living corpses they're like oh no this is this is definitely zombies (laughs) so we start immediately in a few months after the zombie apocalypse jesse eisenberg is a lone wolf i don't like that phrase he jesse eisenberg (laughs) is jesse eisenberg is a jesse eisenberg is a lonely nerd yeah a lonely nerd (laughs) there we go he's a lonely nerd trying to live his best life in the zombie apocalypse he Meets up with Woody Harrelson, who is on a journey to find some Twinkies. They get duped by Emma Stone and small actress companion whose name I forget. Abigail Breslin. Abigail Breslin. And uh, they all kind of just are on a journey to go to a theme park. Because that's where the child wants to go. And they all have names based on where they're from or where they're going. I think it's where they're going, although we do run into the issue of the sisters having different names despite one being a minor. But that's that's one of those things where in this movie it's like a charming thing just to be like, ah, okay, sure, whatever, and wave away. I think there's a lot of that in this movie of just charming hand waves. Doesn't have to matter. Honestly, it's one of my favorite zombie movies. I mean... I like that it starts right off with the zombies. I like that it doesn't take itself too seriously. I like that their goal mm-hmm. is to go to a theme park and to eat Twinkies. Mm-hmm. And the opening credits are really fun. Oh, yeah. I, I love that credit sequence. And I really, really wish that I could smash up a store like they do in the movie. Oh, it looks so fun. Oh, it looks so fun. It looks so, fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so cathartic, especially in the year of our Lord 2020. You're like, man, yeah, completely abandoned store and a baseball bat. So it would go down real smooth. <laughs> mm. yeah, it's uh, overall a pretty fun movie and I do have some shocking news for you a zombie movie uh, is not super accurate in terms of like science and safety nor does it consider a lot of science and safety except for with their rules of the apocalypse which I am a big fan of for a lot of reasons mostly because that they are about <laughs> safety you've got a brand <laughs> I unfortunately do. I have literally been called a paladin where OSHA is my Bible that I use. Oh, which, that's kind of precious, though. <laughs> you know, listen, it's hard being lawful good out there, people, okay? <laughs> uh, when we watched, when we decided to watch, rather, Zombieland, the first thing I thought was, oh, yeah, that's the movie where, like, they eat Twinkies in the apocalypse, right? <laughs> So, obviously, obviously, that was going to be the research topic of choice for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, also, I don't know if this is just that it's come up recently or if it's that my phone has decided that I only want to know about Twinkie news, but I've been getting a lot of Twinkie news specifically <laughs> around the idea of Twinkies lasting forever. There's one picture of, like, a gro- grody old Twinkie that I just keep seeing in my news feed again and again from 
months now. <laughs> I love it. But yes, I looked into Twinkies and whether or not they actually are, you know, apocalypse proof. Mm-hmm. And also? I also looked into amusement park rides and safety around those. Nice. I, true to brand, saw that they had a rule about seat belts and I was like, Boy, how do you should always wear your seatbelt. Thank you, Zombieland, for this unintentional PSA. Let's learn about how seatbelts make you safe. And also, true to form, in like the very intro of the movie, there's one of those, ah, you're wrong, moments where they describe the mad cow disease as a virus. Whereas, mad cow disease is not actually a virus. It is an infectious protein. And so, I'm going to talk about infectious proteins. Horrible. Can't wait. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, I realize that I have a recurring theme of topics that kind of make you specifically, mm-hmm. but I think you in the general sense go, Ugh. Well, so the sort of generally parasitic nature of many of your prime topics has been sort of the, the thing that kind of does does me a real... It heebies me jeebies, basically. Um, (laughs) um, But uh, looking forward to learning more ways to die. Well, I mean, not that seatbelts is not a very exciting topic, but I think it makes sense to lead with seatbelts just so we can get into the more conventionally sexy kind of topics, you know, about Twinkies and amusement parks and things. Like Twinkies. Mm -hmm. I think sex every time I think of Twinkies and amusement parks. I mean, um, same. I was trying to think of like a lewd joke about Twinkies being stuffed, but that it felt too Other, easy. Yeah, cream, cream filled sort of. There, yep. I guess you could call them sort of oblong. There's something there. I don't really want to get into it, but yeah, this is not a blue podcast, okay? <laughs> so life is life. Life is what you make it, Molly. <laughs> I I suppose that's true. And on that note, <laughs> tell me about seatbelts, Molly. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to know about these these good, good safety belts we call our friends. Yeah. Okay. So seatbelts, a rule of the apocalypse, and hopefully a rule of your everyday life. Let's talk about a brief history of seatbelts. More specifically, the three point seatbelt that we all know and love, which is the Y shaped seatbelt that's in your car. So, pre-1950s, cars only had lap belts, if they had a seatbelt at all. Uh, These lap belts kept you mostly in the car, but also let your body kind of flail around inside a metal interior that was designed to look nice and not to be safe. So, car and driver describes occupants as a yolk in an egg waiting to be scrambled. Oh my god. I know. Visceral. (laughs) Wait, I hate that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, Volvo went up to Nils Brolin, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, a Swedish engineer who helped develop airplane injection seats. And they were like, hey, we love how you got people out of airplanes real fast, but can you keep humans inside of cars? And he was like, yeah. And in 1959, the three-point seatbelt was released. So, Volvo... Volvo, That's a dangerous word. (laughs) So, Volvo... Popped these seatbelts into the front seats of their cars and then went on this huge epic campaign to prove their safety with presentations and demonstrations, crash tests, data gathering for car crashes. And unsurprisingly, as we know, all the data showed that seatbelts equals good. Mm -hmm. So 1965, Ralph Nader, yes, that Ralph Nader, published a scathing book titled Unsafe at Any Speed, The Designed in Dangers of the American Automobile. Hmm. And this book was a hit. (laughs) I have actually heard of it. I didn't know what it was about, but I've definitely heard this reference. Tell me the secrets of Nader. I, okay, so I actually wanted to buy a copy of this book because I was like, yeah, girls got to read this. But it's kind of <laughs> a collector's item now. I couldn't find, oh. I mean, I could find copies of it. It's it's not in a reprint? <sighs> Look, maybe I'm just bad at eBay. But from what I saw, they didn't have it. Neither did Barnes & Noble. I'm astonished to hear that. I wonder if you could find it on Kindle. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. But mm. anyway, I'm sure it's somewhere on the Internet of Sphere. I was really hoping to buy myself a copy mm-hmm. just because what a coffee table book that is. But <laughs> um, anyway, the, uh, the book was a hit, and that combined with some other good science and campaigns at the time helped to usher in a slew of car safety laws. 
which included the National Traffic and Motor Safety Vehicle Act of 1966 and seatbelt laws in 49 states. Okay. And so, by 1968, all American vehicles were required to have seatbelts, and it is estimated by the Highway Safety Administration that seatbelts have saved more than 11,000 lives per year. Yeah, that's just cool. Seatbelts. Sorry, you'd frozen real quick, and I needed to see if oh. if you were going to come back. You froze at, uh, it is estimated, and I was like, oh, I sure hope I don't have to stop. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you were looking so pensively as I dropped a super dank 11,000 lives per year, and you were just like, all right. <laughs> oh, that's such a good number. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Wow, wow, wow. So I'm sure you're asking, though, but how do they work? Molly, can I just ask you real quick? Yeah, ask me. Anything. How do they work? The, the car seatbelts? Can you tell me how seatbelts work? Because I'd really like to know. And I like, you seem like the kind of person who would. Let me tell you. So, <laughs> turns out seatbelts are way more complex than I thought, which is a good thing and is kind of one of those well-duh things as well. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go over all of the things that make seatbelts work because it's a lot, mm-hmm. but I'm going to list some of my favorite highlights. So... When you get into a crash, your seatbelt does more than just hold you in place. There's a mechanism called a pretensioner that is located within your seatbelt buckle system, which actually pulls the lap belt down a few inches to cinch you into your seat during an accident. Hmm. These are either spring-activated or hydraulically activated with pistons and explosives. Sorry, there's explosives in your seatbelts? Very tiny ones. Well, I guess there's explosives in your uh, airbags, too. So I guess you're just kind of surrounded by little tiny charges at all times when you're driving, huh? Yeah. Yeah, if you um look at the Slow Mo Guys YouTube channel, they actually have a video of like them activating a pretensioner hmm. and they had to do a super slow mo on it because it's so fast. They were like, our first camera didn't get that very well. Oh wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. I will have to watch that. Very fun. I will definitely link it. So have you ever been in a car that has that weird fold in the seat belt that's like sewn shut? Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Turns out that's a load limiter. Oh. Yeah. The stitches on that are designed to break so that if you're in a car crash and you need a little extra give from the forces, they pop off and uh, help dissipate some of the forces. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So I just assumed that was like any other seam where like a piece of strapping or webbing is folded over at one end and sewn shut so it doesn't unravel. Nah. It's a load limiter, baby. It, it, like, never just kind of thought very, I guess, very deeply about seatbelts at all. (laughs) That was my big takeaway from this is, oh, wow, seatbelts. Turns out, super complicated. So much engineering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have even more fun facts for you. Please hit me with them. So, the placement of the belt is also way more intentional than I thought. I kind of just figured, oh, it's easier to hold your body in place if it's a Y shape or whatever. But it crossing over your shoulder and your chest and your pelvic bone means that it's holding on to you on, like, the strongest bits of your body. Mm-hmm. Like, which makes sense. If you put a seatbelt over your soft belly squishy bits and you hit it hard, mm-hmm. those bits are going to get squished. It's going to be tragic. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're also super intentional in their ease of use because, uh, luckily, engineers remember that people are people. And they wanted to make sure that you could put it on with just one hand which is why the little mm-hmm. Y shape is, you know, the way it is for, you know, your average kind of able-bodied person can reach up and boop, pop it in. Mm-hmm. So, in summary, seatbelts prevent you from being chucked out of the car. They spread the impact to the strongest bits of your body. They allow you to simultaneously be restrained while slowing you down. And they protect the most important parts of you from getting smashed, which is your head and your neck and your back. Smart. Well, I did not research anything nearly so... um reasonable. I want to tell you about Twinkies. Because here's the thing. I watched this movie full of fantastic life advice from a lonely nerd on the road on the run. From hordes of hungry cannibal zombie monsters. Right. Um, and I was like, boy, I wonder if Twinkies actually last for a long time. <laughs> Great question. So, so yeah. In this movie, Woody Harrelson's character, Tallahassee, his deal is pretty simple. He wants a Twinkie. Um, the implication in the movie is that the Twinkies were maybe his dead son's favorite treat or whatever. Um, but it's clear, regardless, that he has a desire for them and he feels like he's on a clock because, in his words, it will be the last box of Twinkies anyone will enjoy in the whole universe 
believe it or not, Twinkies have an expiration date, which is an exact quote. Mm. So, like, yeah, fair point. They probably do expire, I bet. But when? (laughs) And come to think of it, the world has ended. In the the fiction of the movie, uh, I actually had to confirm this both with the movie and with you (laughs) after I'd forgotten what the movie had said. (laughs) The world kind of ended about two months prior to the movie beginning. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's actually long enough that some foods have definitely gone completely out of, like are out of date now you can't eat certain things that would have been in the grocery store anymore understanding that the the zombie thing was sort of rolling it didn't like happen all in one night and then was over supply chains probably lasted a little bit longer but they don't really give any insight on uh shipping supply chains and the management of same in the zombie land universe during the movie so i'm just making a couple of quick assumptions truly the biggest travesty and plot hole in the movie Isn't it? Like, I'd like to know what happened with UPS, you know? (laughs) Six is really what's missing. Tell me about freight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, supply chains are probably decimated, right? Because the people running them have all been eaten or else are eating others. Not to mention the fact that production was probably halted around the same time by the same reasons. So that's kind of what I started looking into. Incidentally, Business Insider, our best friend on this podcast, and for some reason the number one (laughs) location for, like, anything you might want to know about. Friend of the show, Business Insider. (laughs) Friend of the show, Business Insider. uh, (laughs) Says a Twinkie shelf life is, like, about 25 days. um, That's it? Which is really long. Oh. Yeah, I I mean, well, but a lot of baked goods are significantly shorter they're like a week now when you say shelf life do you mean like that's how long it takes for a person to put it on the shelf and then eat it or that's how long it takes for it to be kaput i'm saying that's how long it's allowed to be on the shelf mm. in the grocery store oh, okay, okay okay that makes sense the quote is uh but despite all the myths twinkies really only have a shelf life of 25 days according to most sources including Teresa cogswell the self-proclaimed twinkie guru and the vice president for research and development at interstate bakeries corp the parent company of hostess wow so i'm gonna quote the snopes article called twinkies shelf life <laughs> twinkies have a shelf life of 25 days again mm-hmm. not seven years and certainly not 50 Even so, 25 days is an unusually long time for a baked product to stay fresh. The secret to Twinkies' longevity is their lack of dairy ingredients. Because dairy products are not part of the formula, Twinkies spoil much more slowly than other bakery items. Mm -hmm. And then Wikipedia actually expands on this, saying, A company executive told the New York Times in 2000 that the Twinkie is on the shelf no more than 7 to 10 days. The maximum shelf life was reported to have been 26 days until the addition of stronger preservatives in the beginning of 2012 increased it to 45 days. So if the timeline of the movie is to be believed, it's been two months since the apocalypse really got underway, as we have addressed. And assuming the hostess factory didn't shut down when patient zero got infected, but still did very shortly after, that 26 days is either just past or fast approaching. Wow. So truly, Tallahassee actually is right. Hmm. He's like right at the end of when he can get his ideal perfect Twinkie. And uh, for that matter, there's a lot on store shelves that's going to expire sooner. Wow. Yeah. Uh, there's just he's he's just he's truly he's this close i i feel bad for like razzing this movie at the start because it seems like they did more of their homework than i gave them credit for or maybe they just got really lucky yeah (laughs) i i truly am not sure which it is because this is it's interestingly close. Now, I am saying 26 days because the movie was really released in 2009. And so by then, the shelf life would not have been expanded to 45 days. Mm. Now it is 45 days, they say, uh. um, in Wikipedia. I, I'm realizing I I spoke incorrectly before when I said the shelf life was before it gets taken off the shelves. The turnover for Twinkies in the store is much faster than the turnover, I think, in your home, where basically... It's supposed to be, like, you take it home and then they'll be, like, stale and less good after Mm. 45 days. It's, like, as long as it'll stay fresh. Not necessarily, like, nasty, but, like, as long as they'll not be stale and gross. They must... That's just kind of baffling to me. I mean, sometimes, as we all do, I think about production schedules. Don't we all? Yeah. And to have a product that is in most grocery stores, Mm. they turn around so fast then. Like, that grocery store is putting in 
you know, 20 new boxes of Twinkies Mm -hmm. at least every 45 days, if not sooner. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of Twinkies people are eating. (laughs) And for okay, when I went to go, because, of course, doing all this research, I was like reading about Twinkies for a solid week. And I was like, I just got to go eat one of those little yellow monsters. Right. (laughs) Those naked minions we call Twinkies. But... I made Darren go with me and get Twinkies from the store while one of the, like, brief moments where we were actually inside a store. Mm -hmm. And it was surprisingly difficult to find them. And when we did find them, there was one tiny section where all you could buy were the boxes of, like, seven packages. Like, surprisingly large serving size. I thought I was going to just go in and get a little, like, two-pack serving, like, little snack thing. But I guess it's for, like, school lunches, I'd assume. Well, and, like, life pro tip, as I've learned from all the traveling I have to do from work, if you want individual packages of a boxed baked good or candy good, Mm -hmm. I'm talking Nutter Butters, I'm talking Ding Dongs, I'm talking Ho-Hos, Snowballs. Love a Ding Dong. Twinkies. Even Pop-Tarts. You go to the gas station. Gas station. Yep. Mm-hmm. Same thing with small bags of chips and small things of jerky. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gas station. Only gas station. Or bodegas. Bodegas were great. Or bodegas. But, for sure, uh, for sure. Anyway. Anyway, so let's turn our attention for just one moment to the preppers. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. I live in a fault zone. I think you also live in a fault zone. Sure do. Although a little farther away from the, like, the bad mama dama part. Yeah, I'm not too worried about, like, dying from an earthquake, but I am worried about being in one. But being, like, very inconvenienced. We live in the fault zone, Mm -hmm. actually, the one that's been getting all those articles talking about how dead we're going to be when the big one hits. (laughs) Which, you know, will actually be fine, I'm sure. But the point is that in a recent fit of productivity, I uh, reorganized and categorized my household's earthquake kit. And as part of that process... I did some Googling for further preparations worth making when one lives on a time bomb. And I actually found this community online, this uh, resource called theprepared.com that was delightfully reasonable and accessible for people who don't actually think that zombies are going to happen, but do still want to be ready in case of, you know, a power outage or an earthquake right or like a particularly surly snowstorm like except well i'm not i'm also not too worried about no 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 no. not you personally but the website not me personally but for sure exactly yeah this is basically people talking about like you know disasters can happen in any number of ways so Mm -hmm. i've been doing a decent amount of research into prepping for the rest of us basically is what i'm getting at great and Beyond just the prepared, this website I mentioned, or your average preppers board, although I would be careful with that because they can get very intense very quickly. (laughs) Um, Actually, a tenant of the Church of Latter-day Saints is also to maintain a large cache of food stored in case of lean times, um, both for consuming yourself and for helping your neighbors, which I think is pretty neat. And so they've also got like a whole bunch of really interesting and very detailed resources including cookbooks. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So without getting too deep into the weeds of prepping, the basics of shelf-stable foods worth keeping on hand in some capacity are that you should have whole grains, you should have beans and legumes, Mm -hmm. uh, preserved meats or other proteins, baking supplies, spices, maybe some dried fruits and veggies, and lastly, either a supply of clean water or a guaranteed way to get it. Nice. And those are not including necessarily any special long-lasting emergency food although it's not a bad idea to have that and it's definitely not including things like twinkies (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot more that goes into this type of planning so i can't even like begin to cover it here prepping is its whole it's it's a whole topic there's whole podcasts about it as a whole thing but if people are interested lds resources on food storage and um that website theprepared.com are good places to start looking and uh you know Emergencies aren't just exciting ones. Sometimes it can just be a multi-day power outage. Yeah. Or like losing a job and not wanting to spend too much money. <laughs> you know, having stuff on hand. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Wildfire, bug out bags. That's like becoming an increasing thing. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk about bug out bags there and um, the prepared and a lot of talk about what is and isn't a useful selection of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. 
it was a weird rabbit hole that started with Twinkies and ended with um, doomsday prepping, but I don't know. It's, you know, life is what you make it. <laughs> Listen, I think it's great. I think everybody should have an earthquake kit or a bug out bag or whatever emergency plan they need for their region of living because you got to prepare for that. I would say, I don't even want to call it one in a million, but you know, like, yeah, if a disaster strikes, where will you be? You know, what will yeah. you be doing? And honestly, like, it, it is a little harder to say in this, again, the year of our Lord 2020, <laughs> that like, well, disaster's probably not going to strike. Well, and like, it's, uh, people, people get very kind of hung up on disaster prep because of these, mm-hmm. this big preppers movement thinking, you know, mm-hmm. being disaster prepared means you need to have hydroponic farms and, you know, stores of food for 10 years and stuff like that. Like, no. 47 shotguns. Yeah, it's very simple. You have some food, you have some water, you have your medications, and you know where your important documents are so you can grab them in a hurry. Yep. Oh, and figure out where you're going to meet with your family. Like, yep. <laughs> yep. If you're going to do nothing else, you figure out those key things and you'll be sitting pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This last uh, month, we've been moving into a new place. And now that we're here, kind of inspired by this, part of the things that I'm planning on doing before, you know, fully calling myself settled in is going through and making sure that all of our documents are scanned in mm-hmm. and on a thumb drive. I did that once again a couple years ago. And that's part of the the disaster earthquake kits mm-hmm. that we've been having sitting around in our uh, in our apartment. It's part of the stuff that we need to update. And so do that, probably replace a couple of the pieces in the kits and overall just like find a good place for them. Yep. Stick them by the front door or something. Yeah. So preparedness. It feels good. At the very least, it feels like you're taking control over something that is fundamentally uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. So, Amen. I'll snap to that. A bit of the balm. Balm to the soul. <laughs> Well, hot dog. Okay. Hot dog. Speaking of hot dogs, actually, that is kind of a weirdly good transition to mad cow disease. Oh, no. I don't want to talk about hot dogs anymore. (laughs) But I must. Tell me about mad cow disease. Yeah. uh, So as I was saying at the start, (laughs) at the start of the movie, there's a thing that made me go, no, 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 you're incorrect. Jesse Eisenberg says, quote, Well, semi-quote. I don't know if this is exactly the quote, but close enough. Remember mad cow disease? Well, mad cow became mad person, became mad zombie. It's a fast-acting virus. And the rest of the quote does not matter because mad cow disease isn't a virus. It's an infectious protein. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, infectious protein. Talk about that. So before we dive into quote-unquote mad cow disease, let's talk about just prions in general. Mm -hmm. So... As stated earlier, prions are infectious proteins, and proteins are formed in your body constantly. It's just part of what your cells do. Mm -hmm. Part of this process is folding these proteins into different shapes, and sometimes prions are misfolded proteins, which causes them to become infectious. Hmm. This isn't to say every misfolded protein becomes infectious. This is like a very specific protein that becomes misfolded in a very specific way. Hmm. So they cause damage to the body, which is bad. And the proteins that are affected are most commonly found in your nervous system, which is why they affect your brain so much. Hmm. I mean, they really damage your brain. So mad cow disease is a spongiform encephalopathy. Encephalopathy. That's a word. (laughs) And uses the word spongiform because it forms holes in your brain that are visible under a microscope. Like a sponge. Oh, my God. Yes. No, I hate this. Okay, but wait. Okay, so clear this up because I'm an idiot baby lost in the woods as far as this goes. (laughs) As I understand it, you've got bacteria and those are the little bugs and they're out and they're crawling around and they're like, we're going to get you. And you're like, I hope you don't. Mm -hmm. And that's bacteria. And then you've got viruses and those aren't bugs. Those are, as I've heard it described, like kind of rogue strands of dna or rna something that just kind of like show up and attach and do bad things because they've attached but are kind of just like puzzle pieces looking for a place to fit yeah you're like you're on the right track with all of those things so far more or less (laughs) more or less for (laughs) so then a prion is a protein Mm -hmm. and i can't wrap my head around why it just 
and protein would do troubles. Right. So you're like, you're kind of on the right track with your definitions. <laughs> and prions are, I, I'm like, they're close enough. They're close enough for government work. Don't add us. Come on. <laughs> This is this is so that a five year old could understand or me yes. either. <laughs> Explain like I'm five. Bacterias are sometimes good and sometimes mm -hmm. bad, and they have many different sizes, and they have like usually complex cellular structures. Uh -huh. Viruses are little loosey goosey DNAs and RNAs that sometimes have things around them mm -hmm. to protect them, whose sole purpose is make more. Sure, and they do that by infecting cells. Prions. Mm -hmm. The exact mechanism is not fully known. So you are not alone in the I don't know how this works thing. Uh-huh. Okay. The holes likely are because these prions build up in your cells and that causes cell death. And, you know, the, upon the cell death, more prion proteins are released, which causes the cycle to continue. So, like, oh, I'm. this is my best way of trying to explain something that is not fully explainable yet but sure proteins are also involved in folding other proteins mm -hmm. and like the folding of the protein is part of what gives a protein its function because proteins aren't necessarily just things that make energy or whatever like a chicken protein mm -hmm. they're things that sometimes do other things and so misfolding specific proteins could potentially make them infectious, I guess, but I'm not a neurobiologist, so that is my best estimation of explaining it. <laughs> sure. Okay, I appreciate I appreciate you slumming it for me for just a second there, because this is this is all brand new. <laughs> I fully tried to find like how exactly does this work? And I first of all, getting on my little soapbox about inaccessibility in science, mm -hmm. I did find some studies that had promising looking titles but this is a podcast we make for free and i'm not spending 30 dollars to read an article that i don't know <laughs> if it's going to even answer my question yeah and second of all i did find some articles that seemed like they were going to explain it but wow i don't know enough neurobiology to make sense of what they were saying because mm -hmm. they were talking about specific named proteins and specific protein functions and they were using a lot of like jargon basically that just I, again yeah. we, you know we make this podcast for free i'm not gonna i'm not gonna teach myself neurobiology to yep. figure it out <laughs> yep 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 i get that mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. these proteins these prions they cause those problems in your brain they make the darn holes and these kind of create sort of quote-unquote zombie-like symptoms you know you can have your poor coordination you can have your loss of speech you can have your open sores kind of stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> okay and there there's prion diseases there's multiple types so it kind of further complicates mm -hmm. this mysterious disease mm -hmm. so let's talk about mad cow disease in humans aka I'm going to probably say this wrong, but I'm going to try my best. Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Okay. Which is also known as CJD. Sure. And it's not actually even mad cow in humans. It's not like you're infected with mad cow disease. It's like getting these prions in your body can trigger CJD in a person. A similar process. Exactly. So it's a little bit more nebulous than just like a person gets mad cow. It's a person eats or comes into contact with infected mad cow prion holding bits mm -hmm. and it might not even it's not even a, you know guaranteed if you lick a if you look i shouldn't say if you lick a cow's brain it doesn't matter point is <laughs> it's a little bit complicated so there are three types of cjd mm -hmm. they're sporadic which is just it happens sometimes it doesn't seem to have any sort of risk factors it just pops up in a person and it accounts for most cases of the disease there's hereditary, where people have a genetic predisposition for the disease, uh, sort of like having a genetic predisposition to cancer, right? Sure. And the rarest kind, which is acquired, is transmitted from exposure to brain or nervous system tissue, which can happen through certain medical procedures mm -hmm. or dun -dun -dun -dun, from eating meat from cows infected with mad cow. Sure. So the disease tends to appear later in life, but it kills very fast once the symptoms start. You know, it's about a year. Hmm. Oh, wow. And during that year, people tend to experience many symptoms, 
like failing memory, blindness, coma. So depending on what type of CJD you get, it may affect younger folks and the symptoms may last for longer, but this is kind of blanket statements. Mm -hmm. So now you're wondering, how do cows get it and how does it get to people? Mm -hmm. So cows get it because bits of cow that people don't eat which is brains mostly, but also other bits, are sometimes used as animal feed. So if a cow who has bovine spongiform encephalitis, aka mad cow, is used as feed, that can infect a bunch of cows. Sure. This disease gets from cows to people based on what's inside of your meat. So if your lunch meat has brain or spinal cord in it, which in the USA is not not okay, you can't do that, mm -hmm. then you're at risk. Or if your meat is handled in a dangerous way, you could also get it like that. Sure. So the meat handling aspect of CJD prevention is very interesting, especially because I saw the words advanced meat recovery AMR. Oh my god. <laughs> so <laughs> It is a real thing that actually exists. It is a process that uses a machine to scrape off the last bits of meat from your bone without breaking it. So in order to sort of help prevent CJD, uh, there were some additional processes introduced into this process in 2004 for meats that are processed in the U.S. That is a good prevention strategy. Mm -hmm. The same year, the USDA also prohibited air injection stunning on cattle. Mm -hmm. So... Kind of gruesome, but this practice, quote, inject air into the cranial cavity of cattle, which sounds like a fancy way of saying shoots really high pressured air into the cow's brain. So this was done to stun them for humane slaughtering, but launching high powered air into a cow's brain might cause that brain to splatter around. So they banned that. Sure. <laughs> In the U.S. as per the USDA. Like a, like a yolk in a shell. Yeah, like a yolk in a shell. Just keep coming back to it. <laughs> so it's important to note that in 97, the FDA stopped allowing most parts of cows and other high-risk animals from being used as cow feed, like, in that way. Yeah. And in 2009, they expanded it so that high-risk cow bits can't be used in, like, any animal feed, not even for, like, your dogs and cats. Hmm. And they prevent high-risk cow parts from even entering the U.S. when it's being imported or when meat is being imported. Sure. And it prohibits the importing of live cows from areas where BSE is, you know, a known issue. Mm -hmm. And there's robust regulations about killing your animal and how to dispose of your animal if you think it has the disease. Sure. It's a very great case study in, boy, howdy, food safety is real important. Yeah. Especially because, I mean, you can't get it from touching or being around people or cows with CJD. But the thing is, cooking or washing or boiling don't destroy the prion. So you have to make sure your food doesn't have it. And you also have to make sure when you do your surgeries, your doctors do the right surgery stuffs. Because there's also chances of that. Sure. Miserable. If a prion disease happens, is that just it? Yeah. Is it? That's it. Oh, it's just a process, huh? Nothing to do. Yeah, it's super rare, like, before you start to get, like, all, like, Ugh. it is literally one in a million or maybe two in a million in the U.S. You know what I mean? Like, it is so rare. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, I mean, that's for sporadic. You know what I mean? That's yeah. the one that just kind of happens sometimes. I think when I was reading, I saw that there's only been, like, less than 10 cows in the U.S. that have had it since they've started tracking it, you know what I mean? Sure. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's not it's not a treatable thing. Hmm. Yikes. Hate that. I know. Yikes, right? And so, I mean, even though they, they got the verbiage of the science wrong, it does make a lot of sense as a zombie movie disease because it is a mysterious disease that you can get from eating brains like a zombie mm -hmm. and it rapidly affects your brain. I, I, do, I do hate that. So I, I think you've got a perfect score <laughs> on bringing, <laughs> bringing just horrible things <laughs> to each episode. That's fun, though. It's good to expand your boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, tell me about amusement parks. <laughs> Let's bring this podcast up a notch. Well, we're going we're gonna to kick it up a notch. Just a little notch. And... We're going to talk very quickly about 
Well, I'm not going to make that promise. We're going to talk for a bit. About, discuss. About roller coasters. We're going to discuss. Okay, listen, we're going to get deep into the weeds of roller coasters. <laughs> it's it's anywhere between those two options. Yep. Let me tell you about roller coasters. Oh, boy. Because at the end of Zombieland, in the titular Zombieland, mm-hmm. the two female leads pretty much just spend some time on otherwise unattended amusement park rides. They're like having a, having a day of it. Mm-hmm. Pacific Playland, the fictional park that the movie is kind of sort of named after. That's the zombie land part. Right. It's a glossy, clean amusement park. It's got lots of fixed rides and high-powered roller coasters. But uh, so these characters are at the park and they're alone. It's just the two of them. And they're riding rides and they're having a grand old time, despite not having anyone to run the rides for them. Which is weird. And it occurred to me as I was watching that I absolutely didn't believe that. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying it ruined the movie or anything. It was, But like, I definitely did have a moment where I was just sort of like, I, 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 how's this working though? improbable. <laughs> Yeah. So then I was really curious, like, can you do this? Can you go on a ride without an operator or as your own ride operator? And you may or may not be surprised to learn that that's not a super productive Google search. (laughs) (laughs) I actually was a little surprised by this. As I poked around, I learned a lot about rides, Mm -hmm. but it was kind of hard to get information specifically about my main question. So I'm going to do what I can to answer it. But go with me on a journey. I'm strapped into this roller coaster. Using the seatbelt and everything. Ah! Continuity. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) So first, first thing I started learning, roller coasters are primarily powered by gravity and their own momentum. So apparently there are two types of major ride launch. There's either a lift hill where you go clacking up a hill and then you get dropped and your train attached to some cranks and it like it'll it's a chain that'll pull you up yeah the classic like exactly once you once you crest the hill it pretty much drops you you're on a track so you're not going anywhere but they pretty much just like there you go and then your momentum takes you through the rest of the track or at least until you get to the next sort of power up point or a hydraulic launch which i actually learned is essentially like a winch powered slingshot no yeah so so you're familiar You're <laughs> familiar with the uh, the going up the hill, clack, clack, clack. But anytime you see a roller coaster that kind of fires off from a straight section, that's going to be a hydraulic launch. Fun. And I watched a whole video on this that I'm not going to be able to quote very well. But the idea is basically that a series of hydraulically powered generators will fire and very quickly wind a winch that will carry a little car underneath the track that's attached to your train to the stopping point, at which point the train has built up enough momentum to just keep on going without it. Oh, okay. So it really is like a a slingshot. Mm -hmm. It's like a slingshot. A very complicated slingshot. And the thing that was so surprising to me is that I just always assumed that, like, roller coasters had motors in them or something. That they were, like, powered trains on the track. They're not. It's it's just... A thing on wheels. (laughs) It's just a thing on wheels. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's moving because of its own momentum throughout the ride. Throughout the architecture of the coaster, there will be different points that help it gather more speed or sometimes even slow it down. Things like hills where you can get just a little bit more, you know, have sometimes you'll start with a big hill and then have a couple smaller ones. Otherwise, you know, it's independent of power. The channel SciShow on YouTube has a video called The Physics of Roller Coasters that does a decent job explaining how this works. To the uninitiated like me, it would be probably pretty helpful. So go look that up. But that did bring up the question, how do they stop? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, because if you're not a motor, if you're not motorized, if you can't cut your own power, what what happens? Well, you have to be acted on by outside forces. There's a couple of different style of brakes that are common. We start with skid brakes, which are pretty much exactly what they sound like. The train comes into contact with brake pads as it rolls through certain areas of the track. The brake pads, it does the, the cool kinetic to heat energy transfer. The body in motion, which is the train, slows down, eventually stops because it's all out. But the brake pads have to be replaced. It's um, not a super efficient way to do things, and I think it's primarily being phased out. Mm-hmm. Then there's a frictionless version of skid brakes. That use magnets, and in that same SciShow uh, video, it will explain how this works. I will describe the way they use these magnets as arcane and unknowable, but 
(laughs) But basically, the train goes through um, stretches of track with magnets that will interact with certain sort of like metal fins on the sides of the train itself that will help slow it down without any friction involved. It's weird. It's magic. I don't, I don't understand it. Great. But there's also, and this is super fascinating to me, there's a special type of brake on lift hills mm-hmm. where there is a foot on the bottom of each train car. And as you slide over these stoppers on the tracks placed at regular intervals, the foot will compress up into the bottom of the car and then snap down when you're past the stopper to create sort of a braking mechanism that if the car stops moving forward, it will fall back onto this sort of shelf Hmm. and be held in place. It's a similar concept as sort of when you're driving over one of those spike strips that you can go in one direction but not the other. Right. So a lot of times when you see news footage of a roller coaster breaking down, you're going to see this like big dramatic shot of like a coaster train up halfway up hill and they're stopped on the hill. And how'd that happen? Well, it's because these super simple mechanical brakes have engaged and you can't slide backwards down the hill because they want to make sure that's completely impossible. That's kind of kind of crazy because you see those videos of, oh my God, drama at seven o'clock as this thing is stuck, but like mm-hmm. it's supposed to be stuck. That means that it did its job and stopped you from rolling backwards. Exactly. Huh. Yeah. Hills are actually one of the primary places where roller coaster trains will stop for that very reason. It's a great place to dispel momentum. And it's a great place because there's this automatic, like, locking brake that they don't even need to have computers on to engage. So a lot of rescues will happen on the hills. Well, and then, you know, if you're stuck on a hill, it means you're not going to, like, not have enough momentum to make your loop. You know what I mean? <laughs> like... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. This is also why coasters make the clicking sound when you go up the hill. That's the foot engaging. Click, click, click. Tick, 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 Is the brakes. That's, that's the sound of safety. The sound of safety. I love it. but uh so when coasters break down like we said there's usually a couple of places where this will happen brakes are installed along the tracks rather than in the cars themselves so more likely than not you're going to be stopping at very specific parts along the ride and this is why when you're going on certain roller coasters you'll probably see for instance in space mountain You'll go up and down and around for a little bit, and then there's just a little bit of space where you're just going straight. Mm -hmm. And then up and down and around for a little bit, and then there's just a little bit of track where you're just going straight. And the straightaways are moments where brakes can engage if they need to, either to slow you down or speed you up. And computers on more modern roller coasters can kind of get a sense of where trains are in relation to each other. Hmm. So now we know about how trains go. Right. And then we learned about how they stop. Fantastic. So that's great. Aces. But does this get me any cl- any closer to the answer about whether they can do all that without an operator? I don't know. Sort of? I just got ex- I just figured. I got ex- I thought I was answering. I mean. <laughs> rhetorical. You, d- you were absolutely correct. The answer was yes. Probably. Yay. <laughs> it, it sort of depends on the ride. From what I can tell, newer rides equipped with a computer are generally run without too much interference from the operators at all. Hmm. In fact, as I was looking into this, it seemed to me that most of the malfunctions that happen on those rides aren't actual issues as much as they are a sensor misfiring or getting confused or what have you. So the computer will stop the ride until that error can be cleared, which is, I think, for something like a roller coaster, probably the better solution. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Have an overcautious computer. And the operators tend to primarily just be there to make sure timing happens correctly. They'll tell the computer when a train is ready to go, but... They're primarily just there to make sure that the people there on vacation brain aren't going to, you know, step out in front of a moving car or... Yeah, try to jam um, six people into a four-person row and... Exactly. Otherwise, do things that might get themselves hurt. Older rides, according to a thread that I found on the straight dope (laughs) message boards, suggested that older rides required operator input to make sure that the train um, took curves and straightaways at the correct speeds. So there is some indication that some older, more mechanical rides were actually sort of operator-operated in the sense that they did have to control and make sure that the way that the ride was running was safe. So there's kind of a big spread in reported operator necessity. Mm -hmm. So all that said, the rides at the park in the movie, Pacific Playland, are all really shiny and new. They're not 
old wooden monstrosities from like the 50s sketchy dragon shaped carnival that rolls into town mm-hmm. for the scene where the girls are just going about their day riding the coasters that actually seems somewhat within the realm of possibility so with that in mind mm-hmm. would it be at all safe for you to go and operate your own theme park rides probably no <laughs> probably very no in fact yeah. <laughs> In an AV Club interview with a woman named Kara Folk, the head of Cedar Point in Ohio's Ride Operations Department, the ride operator training course is described as being, like, pretty darn intense. Hmm. According to her, the process is is long. She describes a multi-hour training course on general ride operation, and then an hour or two of training on the specific ride position you're supposed to be there, and then a full eight to ten hour a day shadowing an operator. Wow. Like, they do want to make sure that you actually know what you're doing. No, I mean, that makes sense, right? Like, you literally have at least a dozen, if not more, people's lives in your hands. All the time. Cycling through very quickly. Yeah. It's nothing to be sneezed at, right, operation. The operators are there necessarily to make sure that it doesn't start until everybody is completely ready to be launched. Right. So I think it's very likely, again, it's kind of hard to get information on this, but I think it's very likely that if you tried to play your own park ride operator, you could very easily end up hitting yourself with a car. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Or it just won't go. Like... <laughs> Or it just won't go. Like, there's a couple of ways this could fail, but it really does seem like, um, while you'd probably be able to end the ride well, because mm-hmm. I think the computer is in charge of when it stops, starting it is going to be a really, really dangerous time. And also is one of the more dangerous periods as you're getting buckled in, getting all your safety things together before things start and get out of control. Yeah, Because there's always, I've been on enough rides, I love theme parks, and I've been enough rides where, like, you're there and then somebody starts to absolutely lose their cool and then they have to stop the ride. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. for lady actresses in the movie who are doing the rides, clearly that's not an issue. But gosh, can you imagine if, like, even if, you know, Emma Stone, like, started to faint on the ride and then they can't stop it until the computer says it's okay, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. So all this is to say. Kids, do not go break into your local theme park and try to take yourself on rides. You will hurt yourself very gravely. That's a great PSA. <laughs> More likely than not. I mean, it's, a, it's a good thing. And it, it occurred to me that as I was reading through this that I haven't read that many stories of, like, I haven't read any even stories of that happening, mm-hmm. which felt like evidence somehow. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. There's a lot more reading I did on, on like, offshoots, roller coaster interests mm-hmm. in regard to safety. And there's a surprising number, I'd say. Well, maybe. No. I'm going to roll that back. There is a completely unsurprising number of law offices in California and Florida that have very specific theme park sections. Wow. <laughs> on, their, on their pages. But for the central question, I believe that is our answer. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Hey Ty, you wanna you wanna just lightning round our last movie really quick? A little bit of this and that back and forth for Zombieland. I do. Okay, most of I have to admit, most of my observations from Zombieland are kind of surface level, and I want to start out with <laughs> Emma Stone's Emma Stone's wardrobe in this movie. Like the first time I ever saw this movie, I was like, oh no that i want to look like but the problem is we've got different body types so every day i try to do a french tuck like she does and every day i'm reminded that i can't (laughs) i look like a tube (laughs) (laughs) to still rock it okay Uh, yeah (laughs) i mean there's some where i'm just like it's fine it's fine i I live in a house i I don't go outside it's fine i mean on the subject of (laughs) emma stone's hotness my service level question is, does this count as a Manic Pixie Dream Girl movie? Because mm. he's a huge dork who only wants a girl, and he lands a mega hot babe who's super competent. Yeah. Kind of by dint of just being the last man on Earth. Yeah, and, like, she does have goals and stuff, but also kind of, like, mm-hmm. the whole thing is him being like, uh, ladies, am I right? I just, I just want to have a lady for having one. Yeah, watching it... Not in the year 2010, 
2009, I think. I don't remember when it came out, but watching it in the year 2010 was a very different experience than watching it in the year 2020 because mm. we've we've progressed past the need <laughs> to have a a girlfriend just kind of to put on a shelf for kind of as a collector's item. I think as a at least as a media consuming society we have. So that got a little itchy, but I think it was okay. Yeah, it was fine. In addition to that being uncomfortable, I think I mentioned back in the Descent episode that I'm, for as much as I enjoy a spooky movie, I am not good with, like, realistic hurting. Mm. Gore's not great for me, and depiction of injury isn't great for me. And there's a lot of points in this movie where the um, the gore effects are really good, and <laughs> therefore I do hate looking at the screen so much. Like, there's this this part at the very beginning where a lady's ankle is getting, like, bitten oh. by a zombie man. Oh, uh, yeah, I hate that. And oh, they put, like, a string in the in the mm. gore effects, so it looks like it's, like, it's ripping out her tent. I hate it. I hate it so much. I, there's the whole first part of the movie i watched through fingers even though it's funny (laughs) (laughs) that's a good segue to my my next lightning round point which is examining the fear of clowns as a public health slash media crisis (laughs) because i don't other countries don't fear clowns the way we do like when i was when i lived abroad Um, when i was living abroad um (laughs) clowns are everywhere and they're chill and people aren't like, mm-hmm. I mean, it came out, it too, or whatever it's called. But like, also, I don't know. American Hysteria actually has a really good episode on that oh. um, that I would recommend if you're interested in that. It's a really good podcast also. And the podcaster who does it, they live in uh, Seattle. So I actually went to go see their live show. <gasps> what a delight. Chelsea Weber Smith. Look it up. <laughs> uh, speaking of America. Seamless segue. I'm great at this. Um, Did you know that there's no federal regulation of amusement parks? Really? Like none. Huh. The Consumer Product Safety Commission does inspect portable rides Hmm. and other attractions that are brought into a park. And I mean, like, portable rides, like, when you see those, like, little amusement fairs that'll pop up in, like, a dead Walmart's parking lot. Right. Like, ghosts and then disappear the next week. But if the ride or attraction can't be removed, it is exempt from any oversight. Um, and I got that from the Doan Law Firm website, one of the many <laughs> law firms that specialize in amusement park injuries that have popped up in Florida. Surprise. But yeah, no federal oversight. They used to. There used to be. But it was decentralized in 1981. Guess when Reagan was elected. Anyway, thanks, Reagan. There is state oversight in most states, but some states that don't actually have any current theme parks have literally zero. So if you really want to, you can make a slide that'll kill people and they can't get mad at you, but you have to do it in Delaware. Oh, okay. Good to know for my future death park. You know, weekend plans, I guess. Speaking of (laughs) death parks, I feel like we're losing this great segue transition we had at the start. Oh, no. There's the part where they flip on the giant fuse box and everything just pops on and it's hunky-dory like yep many 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 electrical safety signs are like don't turn on the giant <laughs> box until all the little boxes are turned on or else you might get electrocuted mm. and it just seems very wild and impractical to me that everything is connected to this one giant fuse box i know i'm not an electrician maybe i'm wrong but that seems improbable it really does. Like, if, if for no other reason than, like, blocks can be on different power grids, what are the chances that the entire huge amusement park is all completely able to be manipulated from just one switch? That seems like a... That seems like a problem. Like, even schools will have, you know, like an average large high school will have multiple large switches. I don't know. It mm-hmm. seems, seems pretty sus, as the kids say. Yeah. Well, that's all I have for my lightning rounds. I had one more, which is, um, what kind of life were these girls living where her and her child's sister were running griffs? Like, hmm. A rough one. They also had different names, but what's funny is that their names were based on where they were going. Yeah, and so it's like, we're, I mean, I guess that makes sense from like a practicality standpoint. You can't have two people with the same name 
in a movie without it being confusing. Mm -hmm. But also from the in-universe established rules, it's a bit weird. (laughs) Yeah, I think it must be like the different cities that they were born in. But again, they kind of... they twisted the rules if they didn't directly break them. Yeah, and that was that was the last thing I had. I'm like, I'm kind of tickled about like, I don't know. This is great movie, honestly, great episode. And you know what? Season finale. What a way to end a season. We're ending with a bang. And I look forward to hopefully a season two eventually someday. Because I don't even know what day this episode is going to air. Fair enough. We'll see you guys in... (laughs) Yep. (sighs) Well, stay safe, everyone. Talk to you later. Stay safe. Goodbye. Goodbye.